Hello and welcome to the Evity Lab podcast. My name is Sam and I'm here with my good friend AJ. Hey there. Together we review movies, TV shows, and streaming content. On today's episode, we are joined by AJ's good friend, whose name also happens to be Sam. So for the sake of simplicity in this episode, we refer to him as Sam number two, because I'm number one. <laughs> Open the pod bay doors, Hal. What is it you want, Barry? You, you want the moon? I yes. want the truth! I see dead people. You shall not pass! You'll shoot your eye out, kid. This is Sparta! I am your father. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us all unite! After the stories of Jango and Boba Fett, another warrior emerges in the Star Wars universe. The Mandalorian is set after the fall of the Empire and before the emergence of the First Order. We follow the travels of a lone gunfighter in the outer reaches of the galaxy far from the authority of the New Republic. This is The Mandalorian Season 2. So first of all, I think The Mandalorian sucks dick. <laughs> it's the fucking worst show. I was thinking a lot about a lot of different things going into this episode of the podcast because as many people know who know me, I am uh, a big, big Star Wars fan. I'm a video editor and I got into this industry primarily because I started watching Star Wars when I was little. So trying to cover all the different elements that are involved in The Mandalorian are tricky, but I think the biggest starting point for me when I look at The Mandalorian Season 2, it just comes down to story. What do you mean? I think the story that they tell is better mm-hmm. and how they tell it is better. I like the episodic style of it. I think it's kind of like an old serial style of TV show almost. See, and I think that uh, Disney Plus did a great job with changing the pacing compared to Season 1 and Season 2. Yeah. Do you think Season 1 was slower probably just more to kind of build up the mystery of the character and set up the show well i think season one we had a lot of really good side quest content and i feel like we didn't really get to like what i would call main quest content until we had the bookends and then i feel season two really gave us more meat and potatoes instead of just one-off side quests where we're setting up characters who can just do a callback in a later season after two and before seven in season one felt to me like very middling filler and frankly mediocre. Like, for example, I think the worst episode in this entire series is episode four of season one, where the Mandalorian and what's her name? The the, for- the frog lady. No, 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 no. no. The former's trooper um, defend a village. Marshall Dune. Yeah. And so they're they're defending a village and it goes nowhere. It doesn't mean anything. And I was irritated by it. See, I think you bring up an interesting point, AJ. So my least favorite episode from season one, and this will probably be a pretty unpopular opinion, but it had to be the Bill Burr episode. Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Yep. And hear me out here. And I think uh, for those who are caught up on Rick and Morty, I'm going to use a reference here, but it was a heist episode. The whole thing was a heist episode, and I felt like it followed the heist formula to a T to the point where it was almost satire upon itself. 
But Sam, what would you say was your least favorite episode of season one? See, I think my least favorite of season one was the village episode. Like AJ said, plot hole wise, it felt too big to me where it's like, why didn't you just use your ship to blow up the ATST or do basically anything else to make that situation easier? And it just felt very cookie cutter and I knew it was going to happen. I get it was paying homage to a Kurosawa films, but it just felt boring to me. And in regard to the Bill Burr episode, the heist that I liked, I, I enjoyed that episode, but I thought it played in really nice end of season two where we had the episode where Bill Burr's character named Miggs and Mando are in this the tank thing and they're going to the Empire base to deliver the fuel. I loved how Miggs was challenging Mando in terms of like, you know, the Empire and the Republic, dude, it's all the same thing. Like, what does it matter? It's just, you got to do you basically and you have to decide what's important in your life. I mean, look at your race. Do you really think all those people that died in wars fought by Mandalorians actually had a choice? So how are they any different than the Empire? You and I are nothing alike. Look, I'm just saying, we're all the same. Everybody's got their lines they don't cross until things get messy. I think that's a good example of when a side quest felt very fun and good. And it's so it's interesting to me, Sam, too, that you didn't like it as much. Now, that being said, I think that the second Bill Burr episode in season two, I think that was the turning point in the series. I think that episode was where we moved beyond the feel-good buddy space western formula. But I think we really saw a new depth to both the writing and the plot. Mm, That's interesting. I like that take. This is kind of a big thing that they played on in The Mandalorian, especially season two, is nostalgia. Whether it's Boba Fett returning, Luke Skywalker returning, all the uh, Bo-Katan and Ahsoka Tano coming in from the animated series, The Clone Wars... Do you think they overdid it at all? Or would you say they kind of balanced it out between that and Mandalorian and all the nostalgia moments? You want first crack on this one, AJ? Sure, I'll take this. So I think Mandalorian works best when it is least engaged with the story elements of the main films. It is fun and interesting to see, you know, Ashoka and these other side characters, but they aren't necessary for an entry for casual viewers and they aren't dumbed down for hardcore fans of Star Wars. The story is such its own original beast that they don't feel like filler to me and they don't feel wasted. So gentlemen, let me ask you this. Would you, in your opinion, would you say that nostalgia is kind of like a double-edged sword for Disney when it comes to this original Star Wars content? Like trying to appease to both uh, original fans and newer fans without overdoing it or what are kind of your thoughts there yes it can be a double-edged sword i think but in a good way which we see in the mandalorian season two because favreau and john filoni understand how to sprinkle in these little nostalgia moments to build upon what comes first and always the story and the emotion they don't overshadow mandalorian at any point i don't think and like his main story they're putting forth versus I hate to say it, well, but not really, the sequels that came out, we see so much of this weird rhetoric of like the force is female and weird political like diversity things that get pushed to the forefront versus the story and the emotion being served and then being supported by diversity and female actors and all this stuff where it becomes convoluted. 
then they try to sprinkle in nostalgia moments like the Death Star and the Emperor and all this stuff on top of it. It just makes for a messy mishmash of things where they try to appease general audiences with the new stuff and old fans of the old stuff. And it doesn't work. And they, I mean, they didn't have a game plan going in either on that, but they don't have people understanding the material as good as John and Dave do. Bo-Katan sent me. Nostalgia is a double-edged sword that Disney, that's basically their whole business model. I mean, with all these live action, you know, Jungle Book and Lion King movies, that is the name of the game. The most recent trilogy pedals in that so hard. I mean, with the plot of like another Death Star, it's just, it's painful at times. But in The Mandalorian, Jon Favreau, I don't think he's like a super Star Wars fan. I think this series works because it is not so obsessed with trying to craft some overarching grand narrative of of good versus evil. It is a sole protagonist and his little green companion trekking along. And there are characters that have their own journeys. I think the other direction the series could have gone with Mandalorian is really break into a super, super gritty underworld type movie. The Mandalorian is less of a good guy as we see him now, or that he cares more about stuff. I wish he was more of uh, Walter White almost. So you you wanted you wanted the Mandalorian to be an antihero. I see. Yeah, more of an antihero versus like a Disney like oh he's a good guy in in the end. I think Disney is at a unique opportunity here because they kind of ended Mandalorian season two at the perfect crossroads, and I think it's exciting because. Clearly, they kind of set up, you know, the book of Boba Fett. We don't know what happened to Boba. And the exciting thing is we're going to find out. And I think it depends how much Disney decides to tie in Boba's story with the Mandalorian story. Because I think there is a chance that we can still kind of see that uh, that gritty underworld anti-hero Mando. And I think it's going to be exciting to see if they really tie in the two bounty hunters storylines or if they do everything they can to keep them separate. That's a good point. I didn't think about that because, yeah, you have Boba who could, could be that grittier character now in his story. And Mando is more of the white knight that Disney wants to have. But also, this is Disney, and we're not going to get a John Wick-style universe of, like, the Mandalorian, like, fucking stabbing people and stuff. I wouldn't say that. I, I saw something the other day. There was talks of an R-rated Star Wars-type film. <laughs> I don't know to what truth that holds, but... Oh, that's interesting. See, because if I were Disney, and Disney's obsessed with money, of, of course, I would be very hesitant to create that kind of content. I think they've seen movies like... Logan, perhaps, and have thought, well, you know, that made quite a bit of money. Maybe that's something we could tap into. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I hope you're right, because I think it would be a really interesting direction for for the Star Wars universe to go if on top of very kid-friendly content and cartoons like the Clone Wars that they also have really gritty stuff, because that would just add to the complexity and depth of the Star Wars universe rather than making it more of a surface level, very obvious dynamic of good versus evil that doesn't have as much complexity to it as I think other universes do. Building on that, AJ, I think 10 years ago, if we were having this conversation, there would be no chance that Disney would really want to push the more adult, darker 
take on Star Wars. But, you know, we had uh, we've had two successful Deadpool movies. Logan was, in my opinion, an excellent end to uh, Hugh Jackman's portrayal as uh, the Wolverine. And I, th- I think that both those movies did well enough with the fans that Disney might be a little more comfortable making that jump now. And that'd be really interesting to see uh, how, how Disney can do it without making it too, you know, Disney. <laughs> I am Bo-Katan of Clan Kreese. I was born on Mandalore and fought in the Purge. And you are a child of the Watch. Children of the Watch are a cult of religious zealots that broke away from Mandalorian society. Their goal was to reestablish the ancient way. There is only one way, the way of the Mandalore. I liked what you said, Sam, too. If we circle back to what you were saying earlier about the pacing being different, I noticed how I think more in season two, you know, we've established who these characters are. So getting into more of the action right away, especially in episode one, I couldn't believe that they introduced a crate dragon and how we had Mando work with Tusken Raiders to see another element to them other than just being savages. I was like, holy crap. Well, number one, they upped the budget. <laughs> number two, it's like, yeah, we know who, what's going on. So that and even like the Ahsoka Tana episode, getting into the action right away and seeing her white lightsabers. It was really cool to see the action pick up and expand and seeing those little sprinkles of nostalgia like we talked about from the old Republic games like Knights of the Republic, crate Dragons being sprinkled in. I was like, holy balls. This is dope. All right. So question for you on that. What would your letter grade be for that first episode of season two, Crate Dragon? Because I got to give that one an A. I mean, yeah, I would agree. If Especially if you know what, <laughs> where those came from. It's like, holy crap, these guys get what Star Wars is. Almost, almost. It felt to me like the content in that first episode was almost like two episodes. I thought... It, w- it was just action-packed. <laughs> now, just wait. Here comes AJ to crap on our parade. Oh, I'll get my umbrella ready. Yeah. <laughs> I would give it more of a B. There we go. <laughs> the dragon stuff was really cool. And you, you could tell they really upped their game with this entire season as, as far as action. And, and there's less boring moments overall. But I guess my big problem with the first episode is... I know this is a space Western, but him like coming into this very <laughs> Western looking little town and like talking to a sheriff and the sheriff's like, thanks to this armor, I've been able to protect this town from bandits, and sand people. They look to me to protect them. But a great dragon is too much for me to take on alone. Help me kill it. I'll give you the armor. <laughs> Almost like, you know, a, a Red Dead Redemption kind of plot style of like you got to help me out help out the town and it's fine it's fine like as a story i think it's pretty okay but once you get to the the dragon and all that surrounding action it looks fantastic i mean visually the series is is quite stunning and i think it really showed in the, the latter half of that first episode you know i will give you that aj that episode definitely followed a very RPG quest formula, and it definitely felt like that a little bit. Uh, like the RDR2 reference. Like, I mean, damn, he could have, Mando could have had a cowboy hat on there and he would have been just fine. Like, it would have worked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even with the whole like busting into the bar, like, it just, 
I mean, it's very deliberate and I'm okay with it. It's just, it's a bit too on the nose, you know? <laughs> Before we move too far away, Sam 1, are you familiar with Red Dead Redemption 2? Oh yeah, I played through that whole game. So I want to hear your feedback to this pitch. Do we think that Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett, we might even see kind of like a a Boba as Dutch and like a Mando as Arthur relationship kind of building there? No, I don't think so. Just because I think Disney wants to separate the two. So it doesn't, number one, confuse people. And number two, I think merchandise wise or something, it'll somehow just be better for them to be more separate. Maybe they would cross over every now and then would be a cool little episode. But I think they're going to be more separate from now on. Well, and also they don't seem to have that kind of relationship. They're both lone wolves and they're both doing their own thing. And they, I mean, they both tried to kill each other at certain points. So yeah, good point. (laughs) One thing I wanted to cover with you guys was plot holes. Because I mean, regardless of what you're watching, whether it's Star Wars, some other series, a movie, there's always going to be some kind of plot hole that you could write off like, oh, why didn't the characters just do this to solve this problem? But for the most part, I would say this season has been pretty good where we don't have world-breaking plot holes. Uh, I'm fine with like a minor plot hole here or there as long as I don't notice it. I would say there's only two that really stuck out to me uh, where I'm like, well, why didn't they just do this? (laughs) Number one was when Boba Fett and Mando met up on Tython as Grogu was meditating to talk to Luke. I was like... Why didn't Gideon just shoot the bejesus out of the planet when he, after the Dark Troopers got Grogu and just light up the entire area and be done with Mando? Yeah, I don't know. I thought I thought that was a little weird at first because like Moff Gideon doesn't seem like the guy to like, you know, let things go. Like he doesn't really seem like uh, the type of guy who's going to leave around loose ends. And I can't think of a bigger loose end than uh, kidnapping the Mandalorian sidekick while he's with a legendary bounty hunter and just thinking they're going to go, well, I guess that's that. <laughs> I mean, they blew up his ship, but if they have that precision, why not just destroy the entire area and make sure he's dead? <laughs> like, come on. Direct hit. Have the dark troopers been engaged? Momentarily. Yeah, I mean, in the Star Wars universe, they all have the technology to like wipe out entire planets. So there is kind of the inevitable plot hole of, well, why don't they just incinerate everything all at once? But I mean, you kind of <laughs> have to look past it. Otherwise, this it would be the whole series would be kind of silly, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, still, I'm going to do it again. I'll compare this to the sequels. So in the sequels, we literally have a ship ram another ship at light speed to destroy it. We have force healing. These things that, while they might sound cool in the script, it breaks the world of Star Wars apart. Wait, so what plot holes are you referring to exactly? In The Last Jedi, I forget the name of the ship. It rams the other big ship at Snokazan and destroys it at light speed. Uh, Oh, sure, sure, yeah. And then seeing Rey being able to force heal Adam Driver another major world-breaking force ability where it's basically just feeding into her being a god even more and it doesn't have any stakes to it then. And then what's more, it makes it even bigger plot holes throughout the other movies because it's just like, oh, why didn't Anakin heal Padme this way? Or why haven't starships been just ramming each other or having missiles ram each other in space? 
and it just makes more overall conflict for the Star Wars universe. Well, I think the for your first example is a better example of of world breaking. I mean, I thought yeah, it looked cool, but it 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 does create a lot of interesting questions for the series as a whole if you could just fly your ship in into things at light speed. <laughs> But um, like, why have a Death Star? Why have any Star Wars battles? Uh, <laughs> what do you think is the economic cost of pulling an Alderaan? Like, that can't be something you can just always do, right? Like, it has to cost a lot of like resources to blow up a planet. <laughs> you would think, but again, leave it to Disney. They decided to mount what is it in the rise of skywalker each star destroyer has like a world killing gun on it now apparently because they couldn't come up with anything else yeah actually rise of skywalker is by far the worst film out of that new trilogy but that's that's besides the point well gentlemen i've waited almost 28 years to say the following but i think we should talk about geography what do you think so far about the geography of the planets that we've seen for the first two seasons of mandalorian I mean, we see sand planets quite a bit between the two seasons. Uh, I liked seeing the cool gas planet where Ahsoka gets introduced. I was so sick of Navarro. I hope they do not go back to Navarro ever again. It's, Which one is Navarro? It's the main one where the Bounty Hunters Guild is. It's like a discount Tatooine knockoff. Yeah, yeah. And like between season two going back to Navarro more than once and going to Tatooine a couple times... And I feel like Book of Boba Fett has the potential to be pretty Tatooine heavy. So I'm hoping we move beyond sand planets. I'm I'm cashed. I'm burnt out. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I feel that. I mean, like I said earlier, the series looks really, really good. I and mean, I think part of it is because of the. I don't know if you guys have seen how they do production with an LED screen instead of a green screen. I think it really shows in how gorgeous and and crisp things look. As far as geography, I think my my favorite moments are the very first episode of season one when he's on that ice planet taking in his first bounty. But then also that brings me to season two, my favorite episode, chapter 10, The Passenger, where Mando's ship crashes into an ice cavern and little unbeknownst to them, there's a bunch of like ice spiders in it. It was so cool. It was great. Really? They're fighting the elements, and for a solid 10 minutes, they are just frantically battling these spider things, and I think that's the most intensity that is conjured up in the entire series. That's interesting, because from what I've heard listening to people review the season two, that seems to be consensusly the weakest episode, because it's just kind of a side quest type thing, and it's just battling spiders. Well, while we're on this topic, what what do we think were the weakest episodes of or the worst episode, in our opinion, of season two? By far, the worst episode was chapter 12, The Siege. That was an episode where the Mandalorian universe got muddled in the broader Star Wars universe of, of alluding to, I believe it was alluding to cloning Emperor Palpatine. They just went to go destroy an old Imperial base just because, I guess. And I, I thought... It was boring and and really didn't take us anywhere. I mean, even my favorite episode, The Passenger, even though it doesn't take the plot anywhere, it's at least riveting. And The Siege did really neither to advance plot or, or my entertainment. What the? I thought you said this was a forward operating base. 
I thought it was. No, this isn't a military operation. This is a lab. And the thing about the siege that drove me crazy was they went back to Navarro and that, I mean, they could have had that episode on any planet. It did not need to be on the same stupid sand <laughs> planet that they've been to five times already at this point. Well, that's where they get kind of hindered again because they're trying to have Mandalorian make sense in the bigger universe and they have to bite into the sequel stuff. And oh, yep, Snoke's getting made. Emperor's trying to come back. Um, they're trying to correct mistakes of the sequels. This series is weakest when it tries to do that because it feels so so forced and off the beaten path from our our main goal that we have been, you know, we're we're traveling with Grogu. We're trying to figure out where this little guy's going. While I didn't like that part, I did enjoy the fast chases that they did in the canyon between the TIE fighters and the speeders. I thought that was really cool to see with the environment and geography. moving forward now that grogu's adventure more or less with mando is complete it's going to focus more now on mando and his quest for i guess conquering mandalore and using the dark saber to become a leader of this people maybe i mean that's clearly where they want us to think the show's going i think without baby yoda the mandalorian becomes significantly less interesting and less emotional I think without him, the show will lose a little bit of its footing. They they might still it, it'll probably still be entertaining, um, but Baby Yoda was a a hard draw that brought in casual and hardcore fans. Yeah, that's a good point. It will be interesting to see if they bring in some new character or something to fill that void. Boys, I'm calling it right now. I think it's pretty safe to say that we're going to see uh, Baby Jar Jar in the first episode of season three, and I'm ready for it. <laughs> like, so like, if like Baby Yoda walks, so Baby Jar Jar can run. Dude, you you know how to tickle my pickle, Sam? Yes, too. that's absolutely correct. I do my best. Earlier, did you bring up something about the technology that uh, they used in filming this season two? Yeah. Right. Uh, the LCD screens. There's a YouTube video that I will definitely link in, in the show. It's, it's basically a room that's that's entirely LCD screen, and it allows them to create a much more organic and really, really stunning visual set without you know having to go to expensive locations or um, make expensive set pieces. I think it's it's the future of a lot of big big TV development. Yeah, I'm reading an article here that says more than 50% of the first season was filmed using that type of technology. And yeah. So they need to go on location for shoots. Right. And especially with coronavirus hitting, I have to imagine that was a kind of a godsend. Yeah. Well, and also it's just, it's really efficient and it looks really vibrant and crisp and it has a lot of technical benefits. So they were saying that, you know, the actors actually see the setting. So they're not just running around in green screen and out of the moment <laughs> yeah imagining what it could possibly be right and also lighting is apparently so much easier in that environment too i mean yeah you get realistic reflections off of stuff and you don't have green spill i know the pain of having to key out green screen and track stuff in to certain environments just from the work i do for certain shows and it's it's intensive it's just so it's so much time on the post end to do all that so the more you can do on live 
set it'll save you in budget too right yeah it seems like the they probably had a lot of upfront costs especially in season one but once they have that rhythm now they're they're pretty free to do whatever they want oh yeah dude i mean compared to paying hundreds of people to perform visual effects for different shots you'll save a ton of money you make it back in no time can you imagine though <laughs> their server farm of just gpus that they'll need to make all that technology work for that big of a screen oh yeah absolutely and and you still have to hire a lot of designers to kind of make because the my understanding of it is you're still kind of designing almost like a video game set yep um so i mean that has a lot of development on that end but that's still a lot easier than on-site location and constructing physical props everywhere you got a runner i'm on it I think a big reason for the show's success is Disney's decision to release episodes on a weekly basis rather than the Netflix pump and dub because every Friday release builds up a ton of buzz all over the internet because of the ubiquitous nature of streaming and anyone could do it at any time. It just, it it builds more momentum throughout the season. And I, I I think that's a, a helpful dynamic for it that, other shows, even if they're really successful, don't quite have. And I can easily imagine a world in which Mandalorian was just dumped and, you know, the season all at once. And I, I almost wonder if the viewership would have gone down a little bit because the press wouldn't have been as, you know, widespread. They're definitely running the long con with the hype train. And it's probably that week by week formula. I'm sure that Disney Plus is going to adhere to that with future releases because it works. Yeah, I think it's really smart. It's a and it's a, a good counter to Netflix's model. I think we all can appreciate some of our favorite shows on Netflix that do the just a dump model of the whole season because you can binge it and that's like Netflix's thing. Um, but there's definitely an upside to Disney's way of doing this here. I think it's half and half where part of that reason why they have to do it is because they don't have necessarily a ton of other Star Wars content specifically on there to attract people to the platform. Uh, so they don't want people just to burn through it super fast. But also, yeah, totally agree. They they boost themselves up in the marketing essentially for free by putting it out week by week because other articles and news outlets or social media platforms make articles about the show and basically promote it for free without them having to spend extra dollars on it. So yeah, smart move. Yeah, I actually remember hearing something early on. I, I, I don't know if it was this show or another of... I think it was Disney. They were trying to clamp down on uh, clips of Baby Yoda online. And it, it sounded like the dumbest fucking thing in the world because you're getting this insane free press of how, how much everyone loves Baby Yoda and you're trying to, to clamp down on it because of what? What? You're worried that that, that person won't subscribe? AJ, I think what you might be remembering is Disney kind of found themselves in a unique conundrum. Wait, explain this to me. So typically, you know, before a movie or a show comes out, the toys are going to be sitting in a warehouse, all produced, ready to go. They didn't do that with The Mandalorian because clearly if they made a million Baby Yoda toys and had them in warehouses, the people making $14 an hour making those toys and moving them, word's going to get out. And I see. So they didn't even like order the toys as far as my knowledge, until like the premiere. And I think they were pretty aggressive about keeping it a secret. And I know that they were like, 
I read that they like removed some like early leak footage, like almost immediately. Mm. So I wonder if that's what you were thinking of. Cause I'm not aware of them removing like any like content with baby Yoda. No. And I think it was more of a threat from what I hear, but now that you mention it, that is absolutely what went down. And I think that just reinforces the fact, I mean, cause that was, that's Disney's punch here, you know, like in, in episode one, season one is the end of the episode. You, you see baby Yoda and everyone's like, Oh my God. And that's the big pull, and it just reinforces how central Baby Yoda is to this series. Take him out, and it's, I think, a fairly average show about a bounty hunter. I mean, it'd probably still be fun, but you lose that kind of almost um, shot that, no, I don't even know if mythical is the right word, but there's like a paternalism in, in like a John Wick style where, where this with this hard bounty hunter who's like really cold finds affection for uh you know this little creature i think a lot of it was situational timing like right now people are all about the wholesome content and the mandalorian is the perfect blend of action plot callbacks to an existing universe wrapped around in one fun wholesome package of baby yoda and it's 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 marketing genius yeah, I agree. And it, 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 you, you, if you describe this show to someone, like maybe a, a who, who is someone eating like a candy bar? I am unwrapping a Reese's right now. Jesus I'm sorry, Christ. I got a little hungry. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, it's this amateur over here. Uh, oh man, I lost my train of thought. Damn, Stay focused, dude. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'll just go into what I was thinking about earlier too. Is had you described this show to someone a couple of years ago, it would sound kind of hokey. Like if you, if you, especially if you said Baby Yoda, uh, it sound kind of like a cop out. And to me, what's most interesting is that The Mandalorian on paper doesn't sound like a strong series, but The Mandalorian is so much fun and it has so much going for it that all that is kind of rendered moot. Um, it's it's a Star Wars production, but it's it's very coherent and it it manages cheese pretty well. Yep, like we said, it's a balance of that nostalgia with new stuff, and most of all, it's fun. It's not it's not stupid like the sequels. <laughs> See, this is me, Boba Fett. This is my father, Jango Fett. Your father was a foundling. Yes. Even fought in the Mandalorian Civil Wars. Then that armor belongs to you. I really think looking at the season three, the biggest challenge will be moving the plot forward without having Grogu and Baby Yoda in every episode. And I think the other secondary challenge will kind of be finding that happy balance with the Book of Boba Fett. Because are people going to get bounty hunter burnout? That is going to be like that's what we're going to have to figure out next year. And that's the challenge that Disney's going to have to tackle. But I, for one, am definitely looking forward to finding out. It's a good problem to have with more and more Star Wars content rolling out. Yeah, that's a good point, though, that they're both bounty hunter-centric stories. <laughs> and um, yeah, it is interesting because this show really, really took Disney Plus off the ground. Um, this is what launched the the network and... Um, it's, it's as a result, they're churning out how many ever millions of other shows in, in the works. Well, out of 10 hit fire blasting Mandos, what would you give it and why? I think I'm going to have to give season two 
eight hip-blasting Mandos. I think there were a couple points in the first half of the season, you know, where it, it definitely kind of fall, fell into that comfortable, cheesy space Western. But overall, I think it definitely uh, surpassed expectations. And I'm really – and I'm ready for Mandalorian Season 3 and the Book of Boba Fett. So I'm going to give it eight Mandos and I'm definitely looking forward to more Mando content to come. Well said. I would give it about eight and a half Mandos, as Sam too said. Uh, clearly beat expectations and uh, I think significantly better than season one. Uh, and hits all the right marks where it needs to without boring us to death. And I would match both of you and give it eight hip-firing Mandos as well. It brings about emotions in Star Wars fans, both old and young, that get you just excited about Star Wars again and makes you care about these characters and what they're doing and their stories and gets you freaking hyped seeing all the nostalgia moments come back and make sense versus, like we said, the sequels. Sam, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Did you have anything, uh, social media channels or anything you want to shout out to the people to check out? No, but I, I really hope that in a post-COVID America, when it comes to Labor Day weekend in Madison and the annual North American Shrek Fest happens at Warner Park, I really hope that uh, we might see a live uh, podcast review from you two uh, live from Shrek Fest because I think that's the content that your fans are really hungry for. But thanks for having me on, boys. It's been fun. Hope to be back. <laughs> we will make it to Shrek Fest when we can and become famous from uh, Sam's two word of mouth right here, folks. You heard it first. Well, Sam, what movie are we watching next week? AJ, we are going to be reviewing the new Pixar movie, Soul. It's going to be me, you, and our special guest, who you'll find out when you listen to the episode. <laughs> As always, thank you everybody for listening to the Video Lab podcast. If you'd like to be a guest on our podcast, be sure to email us at the Video Lab podcast at gmail.com. You can find my review for this movie and other movies at my blog, asajthinks.com. And be sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you are listening. Until next time, see ya. Peace. AJ, what movie are we going to? AJ, what movie are we going to be reviewing next? I know I'm the one who's supposed to ask you. Oh, see again, it's, it's all your thrown pick. off. It's it's okay. All right, Sam, what movie are we? <laughs> Sam, what movie are we watching next next week? God damn it, <laughs> <laughs> Sam. Well, a- right. well. Huh? <laughs>